Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of City Talks. Today, my guest is Stian Westlick. Stian is the Chief Executive of the Royal Statistical Society. Previously, amongst other things, he's been a special advisor to at least three science and innovation ministers. He's also the co-author with Jonathan Haskell of two brilliant books about the intangible economy. The first published in 2018 is called Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy. And the second published earlier this year in 2022 is called Restart in the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. Stephen, welcome back to City Talks. I want to start with really the, the, the title of the new book is, as I said, is Restart in the Future how to fix the intangible economy. So what's the problem with the intangible economy that we need to fix? So where we, where we started from in this book is what we, what we call the great economic disappointment of the first 20 years of the century, which kind of takes a multitude of forms. Um, people often talk about the fact that economic growth has been very low. It's been very low since the global financial crisis, but actually it was pretty low even before the global financial crisis. So it's been bad for nearly two decades. Um, we all know that inequality, whether of wealth or of income or of status, has been rising. There's been some very funny things going on that People have talked about widely to do with competition in the markets. On the one hand, there seems to be this growing gap between leader businesses and laggard businesses. But on the other hand, there's been this kind of apparent increase in competition in individual lives among workers and in the rat race, so to speak. And then more generally, there's been a feeling of what you might call inauthenticity in the economy. This idea that you hear quite a lot, whether from populist politicians on the right or from people like David Graeber, the late um, anarchist anthropologist on the left, that kind of people are just that the economic activity is kind of in some intrinsic level meaningless nowadays, that once upon a time did people, people did worthy things, they made things and they kind of achieved great, great deeds in their working lives. And now people just kind of shuffle papers around and, 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 and administer data. And all of these things kind of are aspects in which there is something fundamentally unsatisfying for a lot of people, both lay people and economists about the economy. And what we do in the book is we posit one explanation for this, which is that this is to do with an incomplete transition from an economy that was once based on physical capital, machines, factories, buildings, to an economy that is now based mostly on intangible capital. R&D, ideas, brands, software, data, relationships between businesses. And when we talk about the need to fix it, the thing that we're specifically talking about is the fact that most of our institutions in society, whether that's our financial system, our planning rules, our competition policies, our IP laws, those are all based on the old economy where it was physical capital that mattered. And our argument is that if we want to get higher growth, address some of these issues of inequality of competition. It's an institutional refresh that we need based on the realities of these new forms of capital. And early on in the book, um, you you use a fantastic analogy around yeast and its role in in alcoholic, uh, or making alcohol or alcoholic drinks, which I think is perfect because in a sense, you know, what you're saying, and particularly this came through in book one, which is intangible intangibles in the economy has been growing for the best part of 
40 or so years, but now you notice something at the end of book one that you pick up in book two, that that growth seems to have stalled. So just use just use the yeast analogy, because I think it's really helpful to to explain why we've got to where we've got to with the with institutions that we've that we've currently got. Thank you. It's it's something that kind of anyone who's a home brewer or a home winemaker will 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 know well that um, you know yeast is a wonderful organism. It transforms sugar into alcohol and makes many people very happy by doing that. But it only does it up to a certain point. And once you get to a beyond a certain concentration of alcohol, so you know fourteen percent alcohol by volume in a wine or something like that, um, the yeast no longer functions. And if you want to make stronger alcohol, if you want to make whiskey or brandy or rum, you need a different method, you need to distill. And the reason we use that metaphor is, as you say, for the last 40 or so years, up until you know, the, the early 2000s, intangible capital steadily became more and more important in the economy. It increased, investment in intangible capital increased as a proportion of GDP. It's a very steady process that just went on and on. But what was really interesting when we were when we were writing the first book, there was something a little bit funny in the data for the most recent years that we were looking at, which seemed to be that in quite a lot of countries, including the UK, the rate of growth of intangible capital had really slowed and in some cases plateaued. And um, because those data were quite fresh when we were writing the first book, we just kind of thought, okay, well, maybe maybe there was a mistake. You know, we'll, we, will, we will see. And we kind of just disregarded it for the time being. And then in the kind of subsequent five years, we looked more closely at the data. Jonathan Haskell, my co-author, and some of his collaborators did a lot more analytic work on it. And it turned out, yeah, actually in quite a few countries, there had been this marked slowing down. And looking at the various reasons, I think, you know, one of the most plausible reasons is that although there had been some institutions that had kind of just about worked to build an intangible economy in, in, in some places and in some parts of the economy. For the most part, we're still reliant on the old institutions. And until we put in place the right kind of rules, it's going to be hard to do those additional investments in R&D and software in knowledge economy firms that we need if we want to continue that rise of capital formation and the associated growth of the economy. And early on, I mean, you don't fully reject it, but you do raise some genuine questions about, you know, the sort of standard narratives about the recent growth phase that we're going through, which is, you know, the sort of Robert Gordon uh, perspective. We, we just run out of low hanging fruit, you know, all the big you know, general purpose technologies have been invented and, and therefore there is nothing left for us to do. This is an inevitable outcome. That's kind of one sort of area. And the second area is, you know, we just become uh, we've become decadent. Uh, we've become complacent, you know, we, you know, we're, we're not really in the kind of build it sort of phase as well. You're slightly sceptical, if I could be, you know, uh, polite on, on both of those sort of perspectives because of the analysis and because of the perspective, which is intangibles and institutions. Is that right? That's right. And I think it's very hard to look at, um, you know, to think of some topics that will be dear to, to your listener's heart. It's hard to look at the difficulty of building new, let's say, housing or industrial office space around Oxford or Cambridge or the Bay Area in California and the associated impacts that that has on new firm formation, on R&D, on tech companies, all of those kind of things. It's difficult to look at those kind of things to me and to say, well, what we're seeing is just a natural decline in sort of exogenous rates of innovation. It seems to me this is a very specific problem to do with not having the right, in this case, planning and land use rules for, for an intangible economy. 
it's difficult to look, say, at the, you know, the, the myriad dysfunctions of how academic funding works and, you know, the, the, the cultures that, you know, anyone who works in a university will tell you about um, how research is metricized, how much time is spent applying for funding, all these kind of things, and to say, well, we obviously have the best possible institutions for funding, for public funding of knowledge works. So the only, the, the, the obvious problem is that the, the, the tree of knowledge is no longer bearing fruit. I think it feels to us that there are so many obvious institutional problems um, that there is in some ways grounds for, for, for optimism compared to the, the, the Bob Gordon view. And we'll get on to, I mean, explore a little bit more about the the role of cities in your analysis and then um, your solutions. But I think you use the term kind of institutional debt, which is, you know, the sort of the, the buildup of problems in a, in a current set of institutions that eventually become, you can't resolve them through workarounds or tweaks at the margin. Why is it that the debt has got so large? Is it because our policymakers or don't fully appreciate, you know, the, the significance of intangibles? Do you think it's that? Or I mean, what's your explanation for, for the institutions getting stuck where they are, or at least not, not reforming at the, at the rate that we would I, ideally want them to? So I think there's a couple of things. I think it's partly what you just said, which is that not everyone particularly realises that intangibles are important. So to take an area of policy I used to work on when I was in government, intellectual property policy is, um, it's something that governments care about to some extent, you know, in the last 10 years, sometimes the UK has had a junior minister working on that, but it's kind of not something that's, it's, it's, it's certainly not going to be a top priority of government. So that, that's partly just an awareness thing. It's partly about politicians need to care more about this, given that intangible capital now makes up the majority of capital that, that is invested in, in the UK or the US economy. But there's a sort of second order effect of that, which is about what you might call rent seeking or conflicts of interest. Um, and in a sense, you get more of those, those, those conflicts of interest because politicians don't think this is important and therefore are unwilling to spend political capital fixing the problem. So to sort of continue the intellectual property example, one of the things that I came across very regularly when I was working on uh, intellectual property is you'd meet lobbyists from rights holders so people like premiership the motion picture associations the music industry lobbies and i'll tell you something about these lobbyists they were the nicest smartest people you could hope to meet in government and you just sit down with them they'd be a pleasure to deal with they were they were very very professional operators and you know in the back of your mind you got thinking wow these guys must be paid a lot of money <laughs> And this is because, you know, being able to negotiate the intellectual property system is what premiership or the, the music industry lives or dies by. And so when you when you think through that, um, how does how does government resist rent seeking? Basically, government resists rent seeking by expending political capital and governments, you know, as, 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 as we all know, only have so much political capital. So if they want to face down NIMBYs or, you know, workers or employers or whatever, they only have a certain amount of, um, of, of, of unpopularity to go around. So if you take an area where government doesn't really think it matters that much then why would you annoy, let's say, Sky? And, you know, Sky matters to the government because they care about Sky News, all these kind of things. Why would you, why would you waste political capital annoying those people 
if actually you don't think intellectual property rules matter that much, you may as well just make the rights holders happy by allowing, you know, very strict copyright laws and things like that. And I think you see that playing out. So it's that combination of governments don't really fully grasp that this is all that important. And because they don't think it's that important, they're not willing to spend scarce political capital fighting the people who have a very vested interest in keeping the old rubbish institutions the way they are. That's really interesting. I was, I was, well, come back to this later on because one of the big themes in the book is uh, the tensions and the trade-offs between the politics and the the economics, and we'll explore that in more detail. But just just because you've just raised it, I, I, towards the end of the book, you make this somewhat uh, with this argument in some respects that we need more politics on some of these issues than actually less politics, which is you know, countervailing really, because often you hear, well, what we need to do is to remove politicians and politics from the discussion and make it all about technocrats and all about, you know, rationality. But actually, in part of your argument is if you want to deal with rent-seeking issues, you might need more politics in it, so they care more about it, so they expend more political capital in dealing with it, not less uh, less politics and less political capital, which I found really fascinating. Again, completely changed my view on, on a, a number of different issues. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. It's a kind of um, it's institutions are in a sense made out of politics. So if you don't do politics, you 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 can't build institutions. And I think there's a bit of a tension. You see, so there there is, you know, if you look in the um, in the political science literature, there is a sort of time honoured way of solving these kind of rent seeking or government failure problems by trying to create solutions that are as technocratic and as rule-based as possible. So there's a kind of famous Milgram and Roberts paper that basically said, okay, you reduce rent seeking by saying, if you give bureaucrats and politicians no discretion at all, then they will, um, they'll, they'll, they'll be, it'll be, they'll be harder to corrupt, harder to bribe politicians. And, you know, that is the logic that leads you to things like having an independent central bank, making the Bank of England independent. You know, once upon a time, governments were very tempted to sort of lower the interest rate foolishly before a general election to juice the economy. That was bad in the long run. So you basically say, OK, we're going to put the, the interest rate in the control of some technocrats and we're going to a very simple rule that they have to keep inflation at around 2%. Now, that kind of rule is very good when your circumstances don't change very much. So if you're in a situation where, you know, the natural interest rate is around about 2%, you just need to tweak things. And all the Bank of England is really doing is, is, is sort of fairly tractable monetary policy decisions. That all kind of makes sense. But, you know, cast a mind back a few years ago to the period of quantitative easing, there was a period where government was buying corporate bonds as part of the QE program. And people like, you know, John McDonnell, when he was the shadow chancellor, or certainly people around John McDonnell, were saying, well, hang on, this is the state using monetary finance to invest in businesses. And, you know, from their point of view, they would say, well, this is a, this is industrial policy, and we should be being extremely activist about this. And not only should we be being activist about this, but this should be something that should be the the, uh, the purview of democratically elected politicians. And, you know, there is a, a very arguable point of view that sort of says, yeah. well, you should do monetary finance to do industrial policy in a kind of socialist model. Um, and so you get a world where once you're out of this kind of narrow corridor where your rules work, this kind of technocratic discretion doesn't work. And that's where politics needs to come in. Similarly, you know, in an intangible economy where you need to build new institutions, you need politics to do that. You can't rely on neutral technocrats. No, I think that's fair. It's a fascinating one. 
you know, recently uh, the, the National Infrastructure Commission is a kind of halfway house on that sort of recognition that for these big long-term infrastructure stuff, politics needs to be removed. And But actually, you know, this is, again, and I was definitely in that camp. I think having read the book, I'm definitely less in that camp. I've probably still got at least a foot in that camp, but not not the two feet that I um, that I had yeah. had before, which is really interesting. Let, let's turn to um, get your views on. So in the book, in, actually in both books, but particularly in the in the second book, um, cities loom large. You know, they're one of the sort of things that you focus on, both in terms of explaining intangibles and where we are, and then obviously a bunch of solutions. So I suppose the first question in that sort of is why. Why are cities more important in an intangible economy than the, maybe they have been historically in a in a tangible economy? I mean, why are, why are they more important today? And we'll get on to your reflections on COVID and homework and, and all the rest of it. But ignore that for a second. Just yeah, just give us a view as to why cities are much more important in from an in an intangible economy perspective. So in an economy, well, intangibles are all about ideas, relationships, all those kind of things. They have a lot of spillovers. They're very valuable when you combine them. They're synergistic. And those combinations, for better or for worse, seem to happen mostly face to face. Um, and what that means is the benefits of being in a thriving city with lots of other economic activity going on seems to be getting more and more. So I think we would expect in a, the more intangible capital matters in the economy, the greater these kind of agglomeration benefits from big cities will get. And you, in the book, you, you know, you talk about the, you know, the superstar cities, the global cities, whether it's London or whether it's um, Silicon Valley or San Francisco or places like that. But, but you also talk more generally about how the economy gets distributed then across space. And we should expect it to be coming together in, in some of our bigger places, even our secondary cities than, than, it, than it typically has. And that raises a bunch of geographical questions, which leveling up is all about, which is about so what does that mean for towns on the one hand, but I guess it's non-intangible rich places more generally. I mean, just your thoughts on, on that. How does this kind of play out across space? It first of all means that there is a greater benefit for cities that have historically been doing well. So this kind of, you know, unfortunate tendencies of the most prosperous cities to, 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 to pull ahead and for left behind towns to, to, to fall behind, um, I think, intangible the intangible economy is a driver of that and will will exacerbate that i think another interesting angle is it means that the idea when you do have places that are quite intangible intense already and are quite small and you know places like oxford or cambridge or other kind of smaller university towns are maybe an example of this the disbenefit of them not being able to grow is is all the bigger and the cost of kind of restrictive planning in places like that gets more and more each year as intangibles get more and more important to the economy. And how do you think about that sort of trade-off between, you know, the political more so than the economic challenge of, of developing or encouraging places like Cambridge and Oxford to grow and expand where there is a political resistance at different levels, not just local, but national as well, to resist, I suppose, some of the development that probably you and I would like to see those places kind of go through with then the trade-off, which means we have to go to some of the places that are less excellent, right? However you define that, right? They are less excellent than they than those places currently. How do we think about the trade-off uh, between those those two sort of options available to us? Do we, do we plow on regardless with Cambridge and Oxford, 
or at some point we just give it up and you know and move on to the to the next place down or the you know fourth place down how do you think about that but this is a really tough choice and but i think you have to either zig or zag you kind of can't take a middle course and you know so one one option that would work for england is you say you know we're going to double down on the accumulated stock of knowledge in oxford or cambridge and we are going to just find a way of using political capital to allow us to 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 expand you know significant development in Oxford, you know, building what I hear sometimes people describe as Cambridge Newtown, the equivalent of Edinburgh Newtown, the kind of huge Georgian suburb in the fields next to Cambridge. You know, you reinstate the uh, the the Oxford Cambridge Arc project, and you really you really go to there. I don't need to tell you or your listeners that to do that, you would need to win a lot of battles with people who very much enjoy living in the leafy countryside around Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and you'd have to antagonize a lot of MPs that the government probably doesn't want to antagonize at the moment. The flip side is, if you do that, you can very much go with the grain of 800 years of, of English university policy, which has involved, you know, focusing on excellence and for the first few centuries, only <laughs> investing in, in, in Oxford or Cambridge. That's one option. And you know, you so you 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 make peace with your academics to some extent, but you rile a lot of people in um, in 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 leafy suburbs. The other option is what you might kind of call the Tom Forth, the Richard Jones option, is you say we totally respect the democratic right of the people of Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire to say, you know, we've had enough of economic growth and of of investment, and you say, but in that case, we are no longer going to plow as much public money into Oxford or Cambridge. So you would go to UK Research and Innovation, the research funder, and you would say, we would like you to factor planning and land use and these kind of things much more into your funding decisions alongside excellence, which would be, I hardly need to tell anyone who's involved in academia, would be a revolution in academic funding. You know, heads would be on pikes and in tumbrils and all sorts of things. Um, but you would probably then imagine a lot more money going into, into Birmingham, into Manchester, into other, into large universities in core cities. There's obviously a risk because we don't know how easy it is to transfer what academics like to call excellence from one field to, from one place to another. But um, it would at least get you out of that economic geography problem to some extent. And, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you care about leveling up, it would certainly be an attempt to, to distribute a potentially important bit of public finance that supports growth to somewhere other than the, the greater southeast. The choice you don't want is the choice where you kind of don't make a decision between those two yeah. things. Correct. And you keep on, a, keep on a system that basically puts the majority of research funding into Russell Group Universities in Oxford, Cambridge and London, doesn't fix any of the planning problems, but at the same time kind of refuses to say do the oxford cambridge arc in the name of in the name of leveling up we are probably in uh, in you know in a in that recognition that more more r d more innovation needs to happen in places beyond the greater southeast but practically as of yet we've not really seen any of the 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 significant changes or shifts or policy announcements that we would expect to come on the back of that rhetorical uh, position, and I, I guess that in part goes back to your earlier point, which is this is something that kind of politicians talk about. But I feel like they're not fully 
invested in it because they don't fully realize or recognize the drawbacks or and or the benefits from you know from taking a more substantive position on some of these kinds of issues yeah i think that's absolutely right and it's it's one of these classic things where none of the existing stakeholders will complain that much if you don't take decisive action um you know you you can go on visits to oxford and cambridge forever because the universities are very happy to host ministers even if you don't do anything significant about planning and infrastructure I, i'm sure andy street appreciates that Birmingham would do much, much better with a sort of total rebalancing of research funding towards the universities there. But I suspect he's, you know, there's only a certain degree to which he will rock the boat over that issue because he's got lots of other battles to, 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 to win with the government. I think it's a, it's a, the wheel is not very squeaky from the point of view of Westminster. So it's hard to, hard to really force them to make unpleasant decisions. Okay. And so um, one of the many brilliant bits about the book is that you don't just diagnose the challenges or problems, you're proposing some solutions along, along the way. And in this sort of area, on the cities and land use perspective, you offer a couple of thoughts on how we might um, square, I suppose, some of the, the circle that we've just been discussing. So just say, say a little bit more about how we could or potentially uh, chip off at the margin some of these problems or issues in some of these sort of very intangible demand-heavy sort of locations where we feel pretty confident that land use planning is a real obstacle because in obviously in other places land use planning is not a problem there are other problems which i'd like to get your thoughts on in a minute but just just pick out some of the options for dealing with land use land use planning problem areas well i guess the i mean in areas where there are supply problems with 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 housing and offices the one thing that we've got going for us is that if you can build things they tend to be very valuable and the question is, how do you use the, 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 the windfall from, from, from being able to build in order to incentivize people, to mitigate people's concerns? And I think one of the particular one of the things that I'm particularly taken by, one of the proposals that potentially is, is, is on its way to becoming government policy, is the idea of pushing decisions on land use and development down to much smaller levels. And you often hear this called street votes or micro-level zoning decisions where rather than decisions being taken at the level of someone like a city in the US or of a local authority in the UK, where there's going to be a, a very large number of people, very hard to do any kind of deals to share the benefits of development across all the people who've got to make a decision, you do things at the level of, say, a street or a block or an individual news. And the argument there is, you know, if you can imagine London and other similar cities are full of very, very low built houses, often bungalows or two story houses, very near public transport, not very, not very good land use, very high demand, could be, could, could be much, much denser. Very unlikely to get permission at a local authority level to, to, to densify. But potentially, if you allowed individual streets to take a, 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 a vote on the basis of supermajority, they might be much more willing to make the decision, simply because every property owner would benefit so much from in a financial point of view from being able to develop their property and I think that's potentially useful I think it'll be really interesting to see at trial which I hope it will be soon in the UK mm. um, we know it's worked in places it's worked to some extent in South Korea to some extent in Israel um, I think it's definitely something we should be looking at more and more importantly the principle of saying how do you create 
institutions and rules so that you can come up with win-win deals between people rather than sort of saying to people we're going to force you to build here when you don't want to we're going to force people to build in places i think that's probably the 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 task of people who want to fix this policy issue yeah no i agree with that i'm trying trying to find ways through where we can get some uh, incentive alignment i think is you know as you say is absolutely um critical you you're touching it a bit in in the book i know you've written about this more more broadly in a sense if you know if we think about the challenges of expanding the economy in places like london to a degree or uh cambridge oxford we talk about or even places like brighton and you know others you know the, the the challenges can be politically difficult but from a policy point of view you know the menu of what we would need to do is fairly clear I'm interested in your kind of views on you know, they've been called various things, towns, left behind places, but essentially in through your lens, they are, you know, they're, they're not intangible rich locations. I mean, that's part of the problem in some of these locations, however you describe them, wherever they are in the country, they have a lack of intangible activity going on them, a lack of knowledge, a lack of skills, a lack of kind of interaction between firms and workers and institutions more broadly. Where do we go on with those and, and how do they fit into a, an in, intangible economy kind of framework or perspective? I think there's a couple of different approaches here. I think, you know, there is certainly, and this is a kind of a, a long-standing set of cities talking point. I think, you know, there are a lot of places that are perceived to be left behind towns that are actually pretty close geographically to more thriving intangible rich cities. So I think where that's the issue, focusing on connections, building larger local labor markets is 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 clearly the way forward there's probably a transport issue there in some cases there may be a crime issue um, and there may be some sort of educational links that need to be done there i mean that's probably that's probably somewhat uncontroversial where where it potentially gets more interesting is where that's not so possible um where places are more remote and one thing i think that's quite interesting there is to look at what's been called the community wealth building approach in both the US and the UK. So that's the kind of thing that people like Martin O'Neill and Joe Guinan have worked on, um, which, you know, comes very much from a socialist tradition, but looks at the question of can you um, in somewhere by focusing on links in the local economy, um, build skills, build economic resilience. I don't think the proponents of this have talked about this as kind of an intangible model, but when you see things like um, when you when when you see some of the aspects of these policies, so for example, persuading local housing associations to formalize and be more programmatic about the demand of repairs and then using that to train um, apprentices and to build local supply chains that's all intangibles it's not the kind of intangibles that you see in a science park outside Cambridge. But it is about creating the conditions in the institutions where people feel it's worthwhile to invest in, in this case, kind of human capital type intangibles. I'm not an expert on community wealth building, but to me, that feels like an attempt to solve that problem that may well be worth trying. And it is, it, I mean, at its heart, or at least as I understand it, you know, some of it is about trying to bring a bit more coordination and organisation to essentially a disparate set of decisions or activities within a given place that would probably through a bit more coordination and a bit more organization should give us some synergies and some spillovers in in, in those lo localities i think is essentially particularly as you say in localities where they aren't going to benefit from 
proximity to larger labor markets or to you know to uh to, to kind of larger areas because of just where they are relative to, to those sorts of places yeah that's right yeah so it's, it's an interesting area that i think um thinking thinking of it through that lens i think is uh may give us more uh room for maneuver and more room for progression i think than some of the off different ways that uh that sort of area is often being discussed which i think is a sort of inward looking potentially protectionist sort of view of the world which um i know i would i'm sure you would have some concerns about if it if it went to the it went to the that kind of that natural um end for certain yeah um, I also wanted to pick up, get get your thoughts on, or at least come back to this issue. You talk about the need for capacity building. In, you know, if we need new institutions, we need better institutions. There's going to need to be some capacity building within those institutions, however we define them. Um, and you take a kind of a broad, you know, the Douglas North approach to thinking about institutions are not literally, uh, not always things, but actually a way of doing things. Reciprocity is as is an institution as much as uh, as a kind of uh, uh, an organization. But I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, as you know, in the sort of leveling up local economic development, city development world, you know, devolution, you can never talk for more than a couple of minutes on these sorts of issues before devolution become an issue. I wonder what, what your thoughts are. You don't touch on this directly in the book, but I wonder whether you think, you know, devolution in England, away from Westminster, from Whitehall and down to uh, localities, it could be a mechanism for improving capacity at that local level, which should then bring, you know, benefits around how knowledge is, is understood and used and how synergies are realized, how coordination is, is, is made better between, say, spatial planning and transport planning. I wonder, you know, is, is that part and parcel of it or am I am I reading too much into it? Sam? I, wonder no, what you I, I think I think you're right. I think that does feel like something that, that that ought to be that ought to be helpful and that ought to get places or it's certainly you can see a story where you build you, 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 you give more autonomy to areas and therefore they start to think more about how you tie all those things together and how you focus. Um, Obviously, people have got to make have got to make the right decisions. And in some ways, the sort of the tragedy of Oxford and Cambridge is something where actually there's a lot of autonomy over planning, but there's also kind of a free lunch is probably the wrong word, but a kind of a golden goose in the form of government research funding that, that, that they get anyway. So there's clearly a lot of clever institutional design that needs to go into place to making sure that these things work well. But yeah, I mean, the things that I see um, in Birmingham and Manchester, it does feel like there's a really lot of positive institutional steps having uh, coming from our kind of very modest and very modest amounts of devolution that we're gradually putting in place in, in England. Yeah, no, I think you're you're right. And I think I think too often we think separately about um, the structures and the responsibilities and, and the resources, you know, that are that are part of that conversation. We treat them almost separately and we might end up talking a lot about organizational reform or we might talk a little bit about responsibilities and where they sit or resources and the level of and the type actually i think if, as you you rightly make the point in the book and just now actually i think you need to bring those three things together to try and create a set of conditions where if you had more empowered local institutions however defined that they would make decisions more in favor of growing the economy uh, and expanding opportunity rather than actually just safeguarding uh, or holding on to what they've 
currently got, particularly if they are advantaged in the uh, in the current status quo. Yeah, I think that that that, that absolutely makes sense. So, come up to this on this. Come back to this other theme that runs through the the book. We talked a little bit about it earlier, um, and give us some examples about the the sort of tensions between the politics and the economics of fixing the intangible economy. You know, give us a sense as to where they they come together or where they collide. How, how should we think about the the, the tensions that come with um, come with these sort of two uh, two issues, particularly as you say, if we're trying to fix um, the intangible economy, allowing it to kind of s- to grow again or to to speed up its growth. Mm. So I think you know if we look at what it takes to 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 build or improve institutions around intangibles, you know an example of that might be putting in place better financial regulation to enable more equity finance, which intangible intensive businesses need. Or it might be reforming planning to make it easier to build houses in intangible rich clusters and locations. Or it might be, you know, reforming uh, how we fund research so that you kind of are, are, there are there are fewer perverse incentives for, for for researchers and less time wasted on bureaucracy. All of those things, to some extent, require political capital to get change done because there is always a group of people who are satisfied with the status quo. And as we said, often this stuff is not a huge government priority in the first place. So the, the, you, you need two things. First of all, you need a kind of will to act on the part of government, a kind of desire to apportion political capital. And then secondly, you need to kind of um, then set that political capital in motion. And if we kind of, if we want a sort of somewhat controversial worked example of this, one example, whether you kind of agree with it normatively or not, is actually the way Dominic Cummings described his own overview of the kind of the, the Brexit project. So it's proverbially reported at the time that um, uh, Dom Cummings' uh, WhatsApp uh, handle was get Brexit done then ARPA. And um, your scientifically inclined readers will know that ARPA is the US Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is um, the research funder behind many of the great computer age discoveries. And um, one of the big things that Don Cummings had written about for a long time before the referendum was the significant, or in his view, the sort of crucial economic importance of these particular ways of funding innovation. And the story goes, and you know, you can read this in, in Dom's blog post, that his theory of change for, for the Brexit project was basically that by disrupting the British political system and by kind of accumulating a whole bunch of political capital by, uh, by, by getting Brexit done, to coin a phrase, he would then be able to deploy it on positive institutional change in his, in his plans for reforming the way research got funded and doing planning reform. Now, I think, you know, there are a lot of complex and controversial questions about whether the price is worth paying, whether the the reforms proposed actually happened. But I think it's interesting just to think of it as to think of the model theory of change that that he explicitly said he was he was doing. And, you know, this is a theory of change that has a, you know, a very strong academic pedigree. So Manker Olson or Mansur Olson, the political scientist, um, this was very much his um, his description of how political change happened. So you would, he was an institutionalist, he would talk about how you'd get institutions that would ev- eventually become 
self-seeking and focus on stagnation and the way those would be reset would be by some kind of violent revolution that would allow someone to accumulate enough political capital to break through them so these uh, there's a much studied example of how countries in Europe that were conquered by Napoleon had faster economic growth because Napoleon or the, the Napoleonic armies got rid of the guild system. I think this is extremely controversial. There's about eight different papers <laughs> arguing that the previous guy got the analysis wrong. Yeah. But this, again, it's a sort of very Olsonian theory of how this change happens. And, you know, and that is, that's, that's, that's the model of, of specifically what Dom Cummings said he was doing with, with Brexit. So I think there's kind of an interesting, there's, there, are, there are milder versions of that as well. I think the Macron project in France had a lot of elements of that and is maybe congenial to a lot of people who, to whom the Dom Cummings view of Brexit is not congenial. Um, on the more controversial end, if you look at why Peter Thiel, the kind of Silicon Valley figure, made this very strange alliance with Donald Trump, that was very much kind of what he implied he was trying to do. Again, you can, you can, you can, debate whether that worked whether the game was worth the candle there but it's kind of the 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 broad theory of working out opportunities to accumulate political capital and then spend it on institutional change i think that is probably um that that's that's kind of my model of how yeah. this stuff happens and you so do you think it's a misinterpretation that because you often hear that that sort of model of disruption is code for we need to you know make the state smaller we need to get the state out of things. We need a, you know, we need market-oriented processes in more things, and that's that's the mechanism by which we do it. And on the other hand, you have a kind of code which is, you know, building state capacity equals a bigger state, right? And that's that's an often another, you know, assumption that is not not always stated, but it's kind of there in the surface. How do you how do you kind of navigate through those you know just we need to make the state much smaller and release the dynamism or we need to make it much bigger and and therefore we can get much more coordination and organization and all the rest of it but we just need a bigger a bigger state how do you kind of navigate that i think the, i think the state capacity question is somewhat orthogonal to the size of the state i mean if you spend no money on your state you're going to have a very low capacity state so the the two orthogonal things have a, a common zero point yeah. but um but nevertheless you know you've got something where it's possible to spend a lot of money on certain public functions but to do them at a relatively low level of capacity and you know to go back to what we were talking about before if you've got a system where everything is totally algorithmic and totally rules based you can run quite a big state with very low capacity in, in, in one sense. I think what's one of the aspects of state capacity that you need in these kind of areas is if you need the ability to innovate, to build new institutions, or you need the ability to maybe do things, to apply judgment, to do things on a discretionary basis, that does require a particular type of state capacity, which will often involve paying more money to bureaucrats and pencil pushers and people who politicians often don't like. Um, and that's 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 a, a, a difficult political thing to do. Um, but um, it's it's probably important for, for for this kind of world. So you know, it's a lot it's a lot more expensive to hire people to fund R and D or to do urbanism who have a sort of entrepreneurial view and a subtle take on what to do than people who will just kind of look on page 94 of the handbook and 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 apply apply the rule that's less as you say that's less about the size of the state it's just being clearer as best we can uh in a complicated world about what it is that we want the state to be doing you know what are the set of 
issues or competencies that we think the state should really be prioritizing or focusing on rather than just, you know, rather than getting to a conversation which is a state needs to be X size or Y size and it's either too big or too small currently. I think the other dimension to this is there's also a lot of these important public functions that have a public character um, are things that reside not necessarily in government, but in, mm. say, civil society. So if we go back to the example of street votes, where you're getting people to, to make decisions about zoning at a street level, a lot of those decisions to work are going to result, going to be based on people doing deals among individual communities. You, you could easily imagine little, little development corporations would arise and so forth. Or similarly, if we look kind of on the more tech side, um, the world of um, GitHub, of Stack Overflow, of kind of some of things like code repositories and places where, where software developers exchange code and ideas, these are, even where they're businesses, they're very strongly voluntaristic undertakings where people participate largely for no monetary reward or no direct monetary reward. They get benefits that basically are sort of kudos you know, being a very highly regarded coder on GitHub is, is, is as much a social phenomenon as it is something that will increase your, your salary. Um, and I think we might expect to see more and more of these kind of social, social things arise. Yeah. Um, to close, I could, we could go on forever. I've got thousands of questions, but, um, but to close, you say in the book, uh, and I know you, you know, of what I know of you, I, I, I concur with that, you know, that, you're, you're optimistic that these issues that you've identified and the need for institution reform can happen. In part, it comes from your analysis because it is institutions and we've reformed them in the past. But just, just give us a sense as to how optimistic you are. And I suppose, you know, if we're thinking about the realisation of some of the things that you are you're, you're proposing in the book, are there certain milestones or certain sort of next steps that we would we should be looking out for or keeping an eye on Stan? I guess sort of you know I am I am maybe naturally optimistic about these things but part <laughs> of the reason I'm optimistic is I think you know these um if we want more public goods if we want more institutional innovation we need people who have got the kind of resources and the willingness to help make it happen and I potentially think that one of the kind of unexpected benefits of the huge amounts of economic rents that have been captured by the technology sector in the last 20 years is that perhaps purely by chance they've enriched a lot of people who seem to want to spend a lot of money on some of these new public goods mm. um, you know in the early days you had people like bill gates who are planning to give away all their money to malaria prevention which is very good in its own right but actually if you look at people like Patrick Collinson now, um, Eric Schmidt from Google, a lot of the people who have made money in crypto, they seem to be focusing quite a lot on the question of how you deliver these public goods. So when I think of the stuff that the John Arnold Foundation did in terms of kind of reducing research fraud, which is a nice bit of kind of intangible infrastructure, the work that people are doing on coming up with new ways of funding scientific research. There's a lot of interest in planning reform among these groups. They're all big fans of kind of very center for cities adjacent um, work, both in the US and the UK. You know, it sort of seems that a bunch of people with sort of sympathetic ideas seem to have um, seem to have fortunately got very rich. And it would be great if that if the benefits from that result in, in, in improvement in this area. 
So I think that's 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 kind of one one reasonably positive. I think things that we'd want to see or signs, what would be what would be the signs of growth in this area? I mean, obviously the thing we ultimately want to see is faster economic growth, reductions of inequality. Um, but some sort of early glimmers we might get. I think it would be great to see more developments around planning reform, more sort of practical successes for the, the, the YIMBY movement in intense housing markets. I think we would expect, we would hope to see more um, change and reform in how we fund things like research. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we'd, we'd hope to see changes in the financial system. So moving towards more, um, equity finance, less dependency on bank debt, which is less and less appropriate for this economy. And um, maybe I maybe it's just because I'm looking out for the signs, but I feel that I see some of those coming coming down the road. But the next five to 10 years are going to be a really interesting time to watch. And the external kind of macro environment, you know, to, as you said at the start, sort of 20 years of relatively low uh, growth in many respects, standards of living, you know, fairly, you know, not really increasing, at least for significant proportions of society those in themselves provide you know motivation for political capital polit and politicians to to get on board with you know being more serious about trying to address these sorts of issues let's hope so i mean i think the the, the big enemy here is is kind of fatalism an assumption that this is the kind of the new normal or is kind of something for for us to accept but i'd like to think there are there are enough voices crying out against that that we could that we can achieve some change very good, very good. My guest today has been Stian Westlake. Stian, thanks very much for being part of City Talks. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.